philosophies that are owned by Africans, one of which in Southern Africa is Ubuntu. I am because you are. I'm not competing with you. Our next guest is Sarah Kamala, an award-winning mountaineer who provides world-class transformational coaching to entrepreneurs, executives, business professionals, and sales teams all over the world. As an experienced business executive, she has a solid track record in some of South Africa's leading financial institutions as an e-commerce and loyalty specialist. In 2019, on a fourth attempt, Sarah summited Mount Everest, becoming the first black African woman to summit Mount Everest a demonstration of her resilience, irrespective of her starting point and past unsuccessful attempts. Sarai uses a combination of mountaineering triumphs and her ability to steer businesses to partner with organizations that are on a transformational journey to enable individuals and teams to identify their personal business goals, explore and unleash their full potential and achieve set goals. She is the founder of Summit with a Purpose, an initiative that has raised funds to, to build physical and digital libraries in disadvantaged African schools. She believes that literacy and education has the power to change the narrative for the next generation. Sarah, welcome to My South Africa Lab. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show with us. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So I was deeply fascinated by, by your exploit. And to see someone, it's hard to say this because I struggle to say these sort of things. Like someone, an African, doing these sort of things that we're not very well known for. Mm. Can you take us to the moment when you went up to the top of the mountain? So you're at the top. What is it like? What's the feeling? What's going through your mind? How are you processing all of this, knowing that you've achieved what you've achieved? Well, it's, uh, it's humbling. Uh, first, I need to go back to the fact that it wasn't my first attempt. I attempted Everest four times, three times didn't make it, uh, 2014, 2015, and 2017. And in the process, I encountered all sorts. You know, I didn't belong on the mountain, um, some of which started becoming almost my own self-disbelief to say maybe they're right, you know. Um, so getting up there and, and standing up in 2019 on the 16th of May was not only humbling, it was one that was very emotional. It took me back to my mother, who was a single mother, saying the sky is the limit and realizing that she was wrong. The sky is not the limit. We can achieve above the clouds because suddenly I was up there 66 years after the mountain was summited and the clouds were beneath me, you know. It also humbled me to realize that the doors that were closed, I should have smiled and walked on as difficult as it, as it was because they left the gate wide open and I walked right through it. And wow. someone like me was eventually able to step above the clouds. So it's um, emotional, humbling, but also I guess in the moment I underestimated the magnitude of it all until I came home. Uh, to people that didn't believe in me, welcoming me at the airport, then I realized that I may have been uh, 
training and pushing in the background, but everyone was watching and they were cheering me on. So why didn't you give up after oh. three, four attempts? <laughs> Maybe I should start with why I climb. I think knowing why I climb helped me move forward, even when things looked like they were not working. I learned a lot along the way. I don't believe for one moment 2019 was a success in isolation of all the attempts 2014, 2015 and 2017. I learned something from each and every one of them. And I always say it's failing forward. You only fail if you fail to learn from the experience. When I went in 2014, all I did was gym work. And I noticed that people that did a lot of cardio, running and cycling, were better climbers than I was. I started running, I started cycling, I went back and I was stronger. You know, so um, I think I went back because I started climbing after climbing Kilimanjaro, which is the highest peak in, in Africa, as a bucket list item, but using it to raise money for a home that looks after street kids. And one of the street kids in the home came to me and said, do you really come from the township? So the township is where black people used to be put during apartheid and white people stayed in the suburb. Okay. And, and I, I looked at her and I thought it was a joke because we all say do black people swim, right? And I realized <laughs> she was serious. She said, no, because people like us don't do things like this. Now I'm a mother of two. Coming home, I looked at my sons and I wondered if I was doing enough to show them that help comes from within, to show them that it doesn't matter what they look like, where they come from, where they are at, what the world thinks of us. We too belong on top of the world. Um, and that just started my uh, need to climb mountains, but not just to climb, but climb and raise money for education. So I started that initiative, Summits with a Purpose. I don't just climb to take a selfie. I climb and raise money for education because I believe yeah. that education can change the narrative for the next generation of Africans. If you look at all the stats, they're saying Africa has the youngest population in the world. What are you and I doing to make sure that that gen young generation is going to leave the world and not be second-class citizens in this global mm -hmm. village? I think Absolutely. it starts with education, numeracy and, um, and literacy. And that's why I'm passionate. I've been able to raise 2.6 million rands. I've built libraries. And my ambition now is to build at least one library in every country on the continent. And I know it's possible. So where does that language come from? Um, that people like us don't do that sort of stuff. Because it's not something I remember being, it wasn't an explicit thing that was said, but it's almost like it was in the air and you could just sense that, yeah, we don't do that sort of stuff. And I, I really struggle now, um, especially when you talk about like reading. We have an aversion to reading. Even people here that I know, Africans especially, just just refuse to read any book at all. Where do you think this comes from? And what is going on? I think, look, it comes from an environment. We, we kind of need to break the cycle at some point. Um, and it's not up to the person next to you. It's up to each and every one of us to actually change that. Um, I did a TED talk where I talked about the gift to the next generation. Because yeah. growing up, I grew up in a very Christian family raised by a, a missionary grandfather. And all the heroes I read about in the Bible didn't look like me. They no. were all Jewish, white, and, and different. 
right? Yeah, uh, and right. <laughs> never mind the fact that it said that uh, you know there were five thousand people, you know, excluding women and children. So you know, women and children were not <laughs> were not counted as people. <laughs> and, and and when you move around, you go back to cartoons. Um, we had cartoons for one hour between five and six. All the cartoons were Superman and Wonder Woman. They were white, even if they were cartoons, and they were flying around. Nobody around me was flying. And every time you saw a, a TV um, movie that had people like us, they were either domestics or they, they were just doing mediocre uh, jobs. And this has, has subsequently changed. But there's a lot more that can change. I don't underestimate for one minute that that was playing on the narrative that we don't do this and we, we do this. Absolutely. Having said that, if you look at the South African history as an example, there were jobs that were for black people and jobs that black people didn't dream to, to actually aim for, you know. Yeah. And, and it's coming from generation of, um, you know, uh, discrimination, a generation of making people like us believe that we are less than, you know. We can do what we are permitted to do, you know, and not yeah. what our minds and, and, you know, imaginations can come up with. And that is changing, but it's changing slowly and it's not going to change on its own. It's going to change if you and I are deliberate in everything that we're doing. If you and I are very much um, aware of how our performance, our excellence in every corner that we are in affects the coming generation. I don't know if you, you are familiar with this, but you would walk into an office. I mean, I was an executive for over 25 years. You walk into an office and people say, those people are lazy. Why? Because mm, they saw one right. person being lazy. One person being lazy. So that means I have the capability to change the narrative for those that are coming from me. So it's our individual responsibility to own it, you know, to step up, to be excellent in everything that we're doing. Otherwise, nothing is going to change. We're going to wake up 100 years from now and we still have the same narrative that our grandparents were, you know, uh, were complaining about. What does it take to break that sort of mindset? And you did mention education and the, even the awareness that you can actually change your own environment. You can change something in your life and you don't have to wait for permission anymore. Um, I was speaking to someone who said, you know, they don't write about us the way they're supposed to, or they don't, something along those lines, they don't, they don't write our story properly. Who is this they that they're talking about? And what do we do with our own printing presses? What do we print? What do we read? And what do we aspire to? How do we change the narrative if the basic things that we need to do, reading, writing, that we need to pass on to the younger generation, if we don't do that, how do we expect to, to make any meaningful change? That, that's actually a very good point. Uh, you know, it starts, I'm an executive coach now, and, and what I focus on is looking at people's strengths. If we all realize that we are uniquely made, we are uniquely extraordinary, you can't be me. It doesn't matter how many years you try to be me. No. I, I'm effortlessly me. And if I There's only on one you. I, absolutely. You know, I'll yeah. leave the world different in my little environment and 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 we can never be other people right uh, and and if we focus on our strengths and our purpose 
you know, the sky is the limit. We only remain ordinary when we try and copy other people, when we try and be what we are not. But if you go back and look at uh, education, I don't know if you went uh, to school in Africa at all, and I'm not sure if it's like that all over the world. When I was growing up, if you were not good at maths, they gave you an extra teacher, extra classes, because you were not good at maths. Nobody bothered to understand whether I'm good at poetry and no. let me be the best poet in the world. You know, and it doesn't matter how many teachers they throw at you in mathematics, you are not going to be Einstein. You're, you're not going to be There's the no best chance. teachers. You know, it, it's, it, let's just maybe make it simple. If you look at Usain Bolt when he was at his peak, you know, no one was forcing him to swim. We wanted him to run because that's his thing and he's the because best in the world. And yeah. we gave him the best coaches. Like Africa needs to get to that level. And, and Africa needs to be proud of certain um, philosophies that are owned by Africans, one of which in Southern Africa is Ubuntu. I am because you are. I'm not competing with you because you can never be better than I am in my lane and I can never be better, but I can support you. And I always tell teams that I coach and people that I speak to that I've been to the top of the world and there's enough space for everybody. Drop down that ladder and pick the person up because the, the Africa's narrative is not going to be changed by one person. It's going to be changed by each and every one of us being intentional with every step and how we, we do things changing our children's mindset. Because if, if you talk to an, an American child, as an example, a European child, and say, well, the world is one country, can you be the president? I think, yes, of course. But if you speak to an African, I doubt that they would actually really and believe that they can. We yeah. need to get to that level. And it starts in the mindset, and it starts with how we teach our children. Somebody complaining about literature not portraying us correctly, what are they doing? Why are they not writing about us? Why are they not consuming our literature? What are they consuming? What are we wearing? You know, and it's, it's, it's always when you point a finger on the other side, many more fingers are pointing at you. I think right. we need to start there. And unfortunately, a lot of our political leaders take these positions and become selfish and they, they forget who they are. They forget to uh, grow Africa to the extent that everybody wants to come to Africa because it's glamorous, but everybody wants to run to Europe, wants to run where it's clean, where it's this and that. But we have the most riches, you know, we have the most beautiful places. What are we doing to ensure that the world, it's, it's a global destination, Africa, because we can. When, when uh, I first went to the US in um, 96, you know, people ask me, oh, wow, you speak English so well. Oh, you use spoons. Guess what? It's because all they saw on TV is children yeah. that are hungry. Hungry and, uh, and starving. And, and poverty. Yeah. You know, yeah. that is poverty. good PR. I think we don't have good PR. We need to, we need to do better. Okay. So it, even though that was, that was one of my podcasts, and then that was, that was going to be my follow-up question. Do we have a marketing problem? I, I believe we have a marketing problem in the fact that we... <laughs> don't tell our own story so someone else tells the story and it tells the story in a completely convoluted way because if you look at all these charities they don't talk about the strength of africa because no one gives them money for that yeah. they talk about poverty and it's become almost like a punchline don't waste that food because there are starving kids in africa and it's all over yeah. the movies 
I'm laughing because um, you know it's interesting that you you go in and everybody thinks um, Africa needs help. Yeah. When I first went to the U.S., it was after I'd watched Coming to America, and I really wanted to go to the U.S. Going there and seeing that there were people that are, were clueless <laughs> and as ignorant as uh, as can be, um, yeah. made me realize that they're just the same, but they've got a good PR machine. But I am a PR machine. So are you. We all need to start telling a different story about Africa, not just talking about it but how we conduct ourselves. I'm not apologetic about being African. You know, people say, why do you, keep say, why do you insist about being the first black African woman to summit Everest? I will. I'll say that I'm until not. I get to my grave. That is representation. I am proud to be black, woman, and African. And right. just like everybody else is proud to be who they are. I'm a, and I'm apologetic about that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we are so apologetic about many things. A simple thing like if you look at Chinese, they eat with sticks and it's fancy and you go to the most fanciest restaurant, it's trendy, it's everybody awesome. around the world wants to do that. I don't see people eating pap with hands in fancy hotels. Why not? You know? Yeah. And it's not their fault. We need to teach them how to treat us. We need to teach them how to talk about us and we need to realize that us remaining third class citizens helps them in continuous exploitation of our resources, our people and everything else that we have. Do you think our leaders know what they're doing in to be able to stand up to, to this global I call them the, this global hustle men because all they do is come and hustle the continent and leader after leader gives them an opportunity to do that because we're not able to speak up or our leaders are absolutely clueless about how to lead a generation of kids who are coming up, who are going to be, you know, competing against people on the other side of the planet. I'm not a politician by no means, but uh, as somebody that's been in corporate world, it's important to know when to step back and let the next generation of leaders take on. And I think it's time for that in many instances than not. Um, you know, it's time to put Africa first and our personal interests last. Having said that, it's not that simple, you know. Um, I have a friend that's, uh, that worked in the UN for over 25 years, and, and she would say, sadly, you have meetings and African leaders are called on, and they come to New York or, or Geneva or wherever it is the meeting is, they go shopping and they don't attend the meetings, they don't raise their concerns. And, and, oh, and when these decisions are made, we complain. So do we have the right people? Are we sending the right people? Maybe not. Maybe not. Are we having the right people raising their hands? Am I raising my hand uh, to, to actually do it? So, yeah. So I'm in the architecture space. Um, so we, we do projects like all over the place. And I had a colleague who talked about when they sent people from Nigeria to, to Singapore to work on a master planning for the city. And they'll only be there for a few days. So really master planning, you, don't, you really don't have a lot of time. And a few days is not even close to being enough to develop a master plan for your city. And these people get off the plane and the first thing they want to do is go shopping. Um, I was so embarrassed. But I knew it was true because largely, and I think someone explained it to me, 
that because these people who were sent are sort of related to the politicians who sent them in the first place, they have no business being there. And that's why they have like zero interest in being there. I mean, it's a really shady excuse um, to send someone overseas to represent your country who ends up not representing your country but representing their own interests because they want to go shopping um, in, the, in the biggest mall there is. Um, yeah, it's deeply, deeply embarrassing. Um, if we want to shift back to, to mountaineering and like sort of achieving things, let's say there's, a, there's an average person who says, wow, I want to do what she's doing. Where should they start? I think start with uh, where you are at. You know, um, are you physically fit or is, um, you know, training something that uh, you enjoy? Um, if you look at something like Everest, on average, people train for, uh, for three to five years before they're able to get onto Everest. Start wow. hiking in your own environment. Try and, and push yourself. Get the technical know-how. Uh, it's yeah. no secret that we don't have the snowy environment and the technical training for mountaineering that Europeans have because that's, that's right. yeah. the environment that they come from. Uh, and also learn from others, you know, other people's mistakes, other people's um, insights. Um, but I believe very strongly that everybody, if they're willing and they know why they want to do it, uh, can certainly achieve it. Uh, it's very much possible. But it starts with knowing why you want to do it. Uh, getting onto the training, partnering with yeah. the right people. That's the other thing. You know, um, climbing Everest is, is interesting. So you, you move from Kathmandu to Lukla, and after that, everybody starts hiking up. You know, okay. no technical uh, clothing or anything like that. You get onto Everest Base Camp, you start using ropes, you rope yourself to the next person. Now, yeah. you need to, you hope, the, next, the person that you're roped up to knows what they're doing. They trained as much as you did. <laughs> they can save your life when uh, things go. You know, so it, it, it's, it's a lot of things. And, and I think it's not, um, it's not something, it's not a microwave solution. Uh, it's something that needs to be thought through carefully. It, it's humbling, but it also, it's got lots of teachable moments. You know, yeah. it's understanding how to lead yourself um, in order to be able to lead others and, and be able to achieve. But training is important. Having said that, it's 70% mental, 30% uh, physical um, ability. But the okay. more physically prepared you are, the more mentally prepared you are. Because then you, you, you are calm, you, you yeah. know, you, you, you can expect the unexpected. Um, it also requires lots of patience. So you do all the rotations and you're waiting for the right weather to be able to summit. It's to be able to look and realize that it's so close and yet if I summit, I'm not going to be able to go back home. A summit is only a summit when you summit and come back to Everest Base Camp. And most of the people die on their way down. Um, so it's self-discipline, crazy self-discipline, as well as uh, physical training. So out of the seven peaks, how many have you done so far? So I've done, um, I'm doing what's called the Explorer Grand Slam. So seven summits, okay. uh, the North okay. Pole and the South Pole. So I've done right. Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, uh, Kankagua, Everest, and I've skied to the South Pole. So I'm remaining wow. with Mount Denali, Castens Pyramid, Kosciuszko that we spoke about, and Mount Vincent. Yeah. So I know a lot of, the, it's, some of these questions will come up about your family, but how do you balance the family life and then your 
own ambition as well without and I, I, I can see because as a parent you want to be the example not the, not the words I always tell people like in the in the scripture it says the acts of the apostles it didn't say the words of the apostles it's in our actions that our kids can learn because they're watching even when we think they're not they're watching so if we're telling them how to they should follow their dreams and we don't follow ours then the whole thing falls apart but how do you balance how do you juggle your training your corporate work and then your exploration as well and then coming back home do you go with your family do you go alone um, how, how does that dynamic work it's, it's an interesting question and I'm glad you asked it that way many times people ask ask me and say but you're a mother and I'm thinking well there are fathers on that mountain why don't you ask That's them their, their father <laughs> um, so it's it's a question of, of uh, knowing what to sacrifice, what's not important yeah. and what is important. Um, so by the way, I've just recently taken early retirement, so I'm no longer in the corporate world. I think 25 years was enough. Um, but I was very, once I decided this was important for me, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning and I went to train. I trained from six to 7.30 uh, about, showered at the office and I was in the office at eight. I didn't take any meetings before eight o'clock in the morning. That was my time. And I did that every day religiously, you know. And, and if you think about it, uh, Jesse, we, we have 24 hours in a day, right? Yeah. Eight hours for the bus, yep. eight hours to sleep, and nobody really sleeps eight hours these days. Eight hours, yep. <laughs> And the eight hours is um, you decide, family, me, and whatever. You know, and, and, and for me, it, it's, uh, I believe that something like Everest or my journey hasn't been almost a solace sport. It's been a family sport. Because as much as I'm on the mountain with all the risks that happen on the mountain, especially because I almost died in the death zone, I know my family is more worried than I am. So I need to be able to communicate with them. I need to be able to assure them that I'm going to be um, careful. Uh, I'm not going to take unnecessary risks. Um, and, and I need to also, I, I had to sacrifice a lot of things. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that if you've read, um, I tried to get funding. So most of the climb, I funded myself. So I didn't change cars the way I would, the way my peers did. Um, I didn't try and go and live in the most luxurious house because I had my priorities set on something different. This was important to me. And I think in life, that's what it's about. You know, if school is important to you and that exam that you're going to have next week is important, you're not going to go and, and club. Go to the club. Yeah. <laughs> you sacrifice yeah. that time. Yeah. Although and some do. <laughs> <laughs> some do, you know. Um, but it's the same thing. There's time for my family and, and there's um, holidays that I had to forego. So I'm not going to yeah. go to, on holiday to the beach, but I'll go on holiday to the mountains. Then I can also yeah. hike. Okay. So I, I think it's always important to prioritize, but it all starts with understanding what is important to you. Yeah. Do you mind sharing about, in, I think it was in 2014, from memory, um, when I watched your YouTube video. I don't want to watch too much of it because I wanted a lot of the things to be fresh uh, for me as well as the audience as well. Do you want to share a little bit more about how you almost died up there and what happened um, at that time? Yeah, so no, it's not 2014, 16 shepherds died on the mountain. I wasn't part of the uh, group that was uh, climbing up. None of the climbers were. But it was okay. in 2017 um, when I almost died. Maybe I should just go. 2014, 16 shepherds died. 
um, and the mountain was closed. I was at Everest Base Camp, almost like half a kilometer away from where this thing happened. Um, 2015, I went back. There was uh, an earthquake about 8.3 um, magnitude in Nepal, magnitude. killed over 9,000 people in Nepal, about 22 at Everest Base Camp. I was between Camp 1 and 2. Again, I was saved. You know, a lot of these, you come back and you've got almost survivor's guilt, you know, and, and also questions of why. why? And, and it also makes the reality of the fact that life is fragile real, that tomorrow is not guaranteed because the people that died, were, I'm not any better than them, but it was their time. And I'm very much aware that my time is coming. The, the important question is, what am I doing with these moments, this you know, life. that I'm still breathing? Why have I been spared? You know, what do I need to achieve? It means I haven't achieved my purpose. Then for me, it just gave me that hunger to actually push more and, and do more and be better before my time comes. It also the reality of, do I love what I'm doing? Is it worth me continuing to do? Because the reality is, even if I locked myself in the house with my family, I'm still, I'm still going to die. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's no, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Would I have lived, right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so 2016, I couldn't um, uh, afford it. Uh, so I decided I was going to use the year to save up. Um, okay. Unfortunately, in 2016, I fell off my mountain bike, um, really cracked my head quite badly. I was in a coma for about three wow. weeks. Um, and... Uh, and I woke up from there, and it, that was, it happened on the 8th of August. Um, and uh, November, I ran a marathon, and I went back to my doctor to say if I could run 42 kilometers, surely I can still surely. climb. <laughs> and the poor man probably just thought, I'm, I can't no. deal with this. You know, like. <laughs> so I went back, and, and in 2017, um, I went all the way up to the South Summit, which is 99 meters from the top. The weather just turned so bad. Um, and, and I remember saying to Nawang, that was my shepherd, to say, we need to go back because I had extra oxygen and maybe come back when the weather is better. Because he, he said to me, this, this is bad. And at that point, the weather is so, the winds are quite harsh and fast that if you make any mistake or misstep or anything and you fall, you're going to be blown off either to Nepal or... or or Tibet, and nobody will ever wow. find the body. So we come down, but unfortunately something was wrong with my oxygen supply from the, uh, the supplemental oxygen wasn't working. So I'm saying to Nawang, something is wrong, I'm feeling weak. And he says to me, Sarah, look, the tents are there, we are almost there. Um, so I said, okay, and the next thing, I just lost consciousness. And this is in the death zone, so between Camp 4 and the summit. That's where if anything happens to you in the death zone, normally they, they're not obligated to, to pick you up and carry you. But he came back, he, he went, he couldn't because he wasn't doing well either. He went to camp, got other shepherds, they lifted me, um, put me in a tent, they changed my oxygen tank because I had spare oxygen. Um, and, uh, and they just left me. And when we got there, this is now hearsay, those winds were so bad, they blew off my tent, sleeping bag, like everything. We lost everything in the tent wow. because the winds were so bad. So he put me in a makeshift tent and the next day they came to really pick up a body because I remember waking up because I felt people touching me and I said, I called one of them and he says, like, you are alive. And I'm like, of course I'm alive. Well, what do you I'm mean? Now, I hadn't eaten for almost 
30 hours, 26, 30 hours. And he says, no, but I have no food, but he had water. So he gave me water and I stood up and I looked at Everest. I mean, if I showed you the pictures, it's so close and yet so far. Yeah. And for the first time in my journey, I wondered if all those people that had said I couldn't were right. I think for me, it's the lowest point when you, you start thinking the naysayers are right. The, the yeah. stubbornness of I can do this just disappeared in that moment, you know. I came home inside having really given up. Um, 2018, but I didn't say anything. And I still trained because after a while it becomes a habit really. Yeah. And my son was 15 at the time, my younger son. He said to me, uh, mom, when are you going back to Everest? Not are you going back, but when are you going back to Everest? So I said to him, 2020, just really to get rid of him, <laughs> to be honest. And also, because he plays soccer, and when he doesn't yeah. do well, I tell him, figure it out, go back, try it again, yeah, you know. And, and, yeah. and I couldn't tell him that I had given up. And, yeah. and suddenly in 2019, I lost um, a person that actually told me, I didn't know actually before I started climbing, that no black African woman had summited Everest. And this guy came to my office and told me, but no one had. So he believed that I was going to be the first one. And three weeks before I went to Everest, he passed away. And I just went back to all those moments of not making it, starting to disbelieve in my, in my own ability and people telling me that I couldn't. And I decided that, you know, why 2020, why not 2019? I went back and I summited and I made history. But I don't believe 2019 you know, was a success in isolation of all the experiences and the learnings that I got from the, the preceding, the 2014, 2015, yeah. and 2017 uh, climbs and learnings. Climbs. What would you do with a magic wand? <laughs> World peace. I, I think um, the inability to see the strength in our diversity is something that needs to be eradicated in the world if we all embrace that our differences, that we need men as much as we need women, we need black as much as we need white, yellow, and collectively we are a powerhouse and we can make the world better for everybody. Um, I think that's one thing that I, I would really change. Do you want to tell us about your book, um, your, your memoir? Is it out? Is it coming out? Where can we find yeah. it? So I... <laughs> I just finished uh, writing. It's being published on the 22nd of June uh, by Penguin okay. Random House. Um, it will be available on uh, um, Amazon and other places, but it's currently um, still uh, being published. So 22nd of June, the memoir is going to be out. But obviously, there's a lot of work that's gone into, into that. Um, yeah. yeah, to get that done. Um, is this your first book? It is. It is indeed my first book. I'm also going to have it on my own website, which is just my name, sarakumano.com. Um, it's my first one, but it's uh, uh, my journey from birth up to Everest. Um, and I obviously um, want to write more. I, I mean, I'm passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about uh, mindset because I think that's where the cracks, the key is there the in unlocking you know, our yeah. full potential, especially as Africans, and something yeah. that I would like to, to look at in terms of leadership roles that I've held, where I've seen people really, you know, push boundaries uh, and achieve the imagine, unimaginable. Uh, and I believe that we can do that as a generation. 
Um, where can people find you online? So um, I'm on social media on Facebook at uh, Sarah and Kumalo on uh, Instagram at Sarah Kumalo. My name is very simple. I do have a website once again www.sarakumalo.com and yeah people can reach out and yeah I'll reach back I do uh, executive coaching I do motivational speaking I do a lot of keynote uh, speaking and uh, I'm also starting to lead groups um, to Kilimanjaro I think it, it starts there where I go into the world I found myself on those trails and I pray that I can help other people discover who they are, you know, and unshackle themselves from the bondage of the negative mindset that we've all been <laughs> been baptized in, in a way. One of the things that I didn't mention is when you go up there and you see the architecture <laughs> that no human has planned, with all due respect to you, you cannot deny the fact that there is a God out there. It's beautiful. The sun shines just in the right way. Yes. The rainbows up there. It's, it's such a humbling. Everybody must, must experience that in their lifetime. <laughs> and finally, what's one language that you think Africans have to change? Especially in things that we say. Language, something that brings us down all the time. We don't do this. This is not for us. We need to change that. We belong where we want to belong. If you can do it, talk for yourself. Don't include all of us. <laughs> Some of us can, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I still have people here who say, I don't, I don't do that because we don't do that. And I'm going, you've been here for 20 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> You know, exactly. we, we don't do these sort of jobs because that's, that's, not, that's not us. You and I are enjoying the freedom that we are because certain freedom fighters, country by country, fought off colonialism and we yeah. are free today. You can fly off and go and stay in Australia. I can yeah. go and step on top of the world. Yeah. And we continue to celebrate these people through Independence Day and all these celebrations. What are they going to celebrate about you and I? our generation, are they even ever going to celebrate us? I ever. think liberating the mindset is what we could potentially be celebrated for and changing the narrative for the next generation of Africans. I know we can, but we need to be deliberate about it. So you're saying there is hope? Absolutely, there is hope. We just need to create the movement. We need to create awareness. We need to ensure that there is that positive mindset. You know, failure is only failure when we fail to learn from our mistakes. And, and we can't continuously today blame colonialism. A lot of the discrimination are happening without permission. Yeah. Now it's us saying we don't do this. No one is saying yeah. you don't do that. Previously, it was blacks don't go here. It was very clear, white only, black. There is nothing like that. So what's stopping no. us? It's us. Let's we, not blame anyone. We anything created it ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. But let's call each other out. I'm going to call you out if I think you're, you know, you're out of order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call each other out. On that note, Sarah, thank you so very much for spending time with us. Yeah, we'll uh, publish this on our website and uh, for everyone else to be able to benefit from a legend like you, if I could call you that. Because you have done something that humans struggle to do, any human at all, on any face of the planet. So it's a, it's a massive achievement. You've done 
an amazing thing. And hopefully you can inspire the next generation of leaders, the next generation of Africans who also want to just get up there and push the boundary, whatever the boundary may be. And my hope is that one day you and I, when we're old and gone, someone does not have to have this conversation about why our mindset is not shifting. No, we'd have made progress, at least. Because uh, that's my biggest fear. A hundred years from today, when my grandchildren are having the same conversation, it's not something I can live with. So thank you so very much. Congratulations on, uh, on, your, on all of your efforts and uh, keeping in touch um, to see where, where you're going next. And uh, yeah, hopefully see you in Australia at some point. And Australia is very far from the rest of the world, but hopefully we'll be able I, to see coming, you. I'm coming sometime end of this year um, to climb Mount Kosciuszko, which I believe Kosciuszko. is... Uh, okay. It's a walk in the park, <laughs> yeah. but thank you for the kind words. Um, God yeah. has been good. That's all I can say. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you very much.